I want to talk to you this morning. We're, our minds are filled, obviously, with the season of gift giving, and I want to talk to you this morning about the greatest gift, God's highest gift to us. And in order to do that and to fill out your understanding, I want you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Back in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, look on with somebody. Hopefully you have a neighbor who has an Old Testament with them. The context is, the, the third chapter is the fall of man. What that means is that man has found himself in a place where he's fallen from a state of perfection into a state of imperfection. And chapter 3 chronicles that event. The situation is, essentially, that God has created man and he's made him without flaw. He's given him the power to choose, and he places before man an opportunity to choose for God. He places in front of him, in a sense, a loyalty test. And he gives man the freedom of will to make a choice. Man has no flaw. He's in an idyllic setting. He has all the information he needs. God doesn't hide anything from him. And the basis of the, of the loyalty test, the basis of the choice will be one particular tree. He says, don't eat of this particular tree because the day you eat of it is the day you'll die. We all understand what it means when our parents, as they raise us up, they say, now listen, don't go out in the street because you might get run over. Or don't do drugs, don't mess with drugs because you fry your brain. Don't do this, don't do that. And yet in our own willful foolishness, we spurn the counsel of wiser people and we go and do those things. What makes the case all that much more tragic for the first man and the woman was that they had no flaw. There was no sin in them to begin with. They had everything they needed. Perfect fellowship with God. Perfect fellowship with each other. Perfect fellowship with their environment. It was all perfect. But you know the story, and as the account goes, they chose, rather than remain dependent on God, they chose to be independent of Him. They chose to live their life based on their own knowledge their own human wisdom. And God said, if you choose that direction, you're choosing death. Because you're not able, as bright as you think you are, as capable as you think you are, you are not able to sustain your own life. You need me. You know what happened? They chose to become independent. They chose to go their own way. And when they did, they fell from that state of perfection to the state of imperfection. After the fact, God addresses the man and the woman and the serpent who was a player on that scene. 
And as he addresses the man and the woman, he tells the man and the woman the consequences of their choice. To the man, this is what's going to happen in your life. To the woman, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to result in your life because of your decision. But to the serpent, he does something entirely different. He curses the serpent. And in effect, curses Satan, who has taken possession of that animal, the serpent. And I want to call your attention to the last half of verse 15 in chapter 3. Because you see, at this point, man has a problem. A huge problem. And the rest of the Bible will, will unfold the results and the outworking of that problem. The problem we know is called sin. That three-letter word defines everything that we understand in terms of separation, conflict, pain, grief, death. Man has a real problem on his hands. That's why we got the Middle East. So I've got Northern Ireland. So I've got Central America. That's why we had World War I, World War II. So we had wars down the history. That's why people have died. So we've got disease, cancer, marriage is falling apart. The Bible says it's because man has chosen to go his own way. But in spite of the fact that man has chosen to go his own way, God, in his incredible mercy, does not give up on us. That blows me away. Now you and I, even the most patient amongst us, even you and I who, who have this great capacity for tolerance with foolishness, you know that there's this real limit to our tolerance. And we will not strive with one another for very long. But God doesn't give up. God does not give up. He promises in this verse a solution to our dilemma. Here comes, in the latter part of verse 15, a promise of a blessing, in effect, a promise of a great gift to us. Now just read it with me. And here it comes. It comes in the context of God cursing the serpent. He will crush your head, speaking of the offspring of a woman, this offspring of a woman will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now what's going on there? Well, the context alludes to, or the, the statement alludes to a, a combat, a battle between these two individuals, Satan and this individual identified as he, this offspring of a woman. And there will be mutual blows struck. The blow that, the, that, the, that Satan strikes upon this particular individual will be tantamount to just a bruise on the heel. Imagine Satan's chagrin when he thinks that he's killed Jesus and he's locked away in the tomb and he's done with him forever. But death cannot hold him down. Three days later he comes back. So Satan's blow on Jesus is in effect a bruise on the heel. It's, it doesn't really hurt him. But Jesus... This, we're, we don't know it's Jesus yet, but this person will inflict a mortal wound on the devil. He said, he will crush your head. He will crush your head. Now, 
if this was all we had, if the Bible ended right there, we would have absolutely no clue as to the identity of this individual who's promised in that verse. We just know that someone is coming. And that's all we'd know. We wouldn't know how to recognize him. We wouldn't have a name. We wouldn't have any kind of understanding as to his identity, his nature, nothing. We just know that somebody is coming. But we do have the rest of the Bible, and the whole rest of the Bible is the unfolding of the story and of the account and of the identity of that person identified in this verse as he. The whole rest of the Bible gives us visibility. Now, the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's, it, 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 it records the beginning of creation, records the beginning of man, records the beginning of man's dilemma, man's problems. It records the beginning or the promise of the solution to man's dilemma. It records the beginning of the nation of Israel. Someone said one day, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Nevertheless, he did. They are his chosen people. It is the beginning of the nation of Israel, recorded in the book of Genesis. And the beginning of the nation of Israel finds itself in Abraham. Abraham is the father of, of all true believers in God. But more specifically, of the nation of Israel, of Jews. And recorded throughout the uh, 12 or 14 chapters that have to do with Abraham's life. You have God coming several times and speaking to Abraham and reinsuring, reinsuring him and reinforcing. He's saying, through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Through your seed. We have the first promise in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 12, again in chapter 14, in chapter 18, in chapter 22, in chapter 24, we see these rehearsals to Abraham. That there's some, some special benefit to Abraham through his seed, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. It's a vague promise. But nevertheless, it's there, and it's repeated several times. Now let's look at the promise quickly. Through Abraham's seed... Well, now you could interpret that one of, two, one of two ways. You can interpret it singular or plurally. If we interpret seed or descendants in a plural sense, I think you and I, as we, if we're willing to be intellectually honest, you look at the Jews down through the history, and the world really has been blessed through the Jews. Intellectually, scientifically, in every discipline every arena of life, there have been Jewish men and women who have been tremendously gifted and made tremendous breakthroughs. You look, you look at the list of, of Nobel laureates and you see a predominant number of Jewish names. So God really has profoundly blessed the human race through the Jews. He's not abandoned them. He's promised never abandon them. But there's a second way to interpret that blessing. And this is the way the Apostle Paul himself, who is Jewish, chooses to interpret God's promise to bless the entire world through Abraham's seed. He interprets it singularly. 
In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, you look it up yourself, not now, but just look it up later. Galatians 3, 16, Paul says that that is to be interpreted singularly, the one seed. And he names that seed. Jesus. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. I want you to turn further with me and look into the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 7. We get a little bit more insight and understanding of the identity of this particular person. Not only is it a, a, a he, not only a descendant of Abraham, but now we get some more visibility of this person and his identity. In chapter 7 of Isaiah, now Isaiah is the great messianic prophet. He is the one prophet who, in writing to Israel, communicates over and over and over multitudes of ways in which the people of Israel, when the Messiah comes, they'll have concrete ways to be able to recognize him so that they can receive him. He's called the great messianic prophet. And in chapter 7, verse 14, we have an astounding claim. God, speaking through Isaiah, says this, that a virgin will be with child. A virgin will be with child. Right off the bat, that is, humanly speaking, impossible. So we're getting some insight into the identity of this character and the events surrounding his birth. They're miraculous events. It's a miraculous birth. A virgin shall be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So right away now, we're getting some insight. Here's some unique circumstances surrounding the birth of this promised person. This person is going to be born of a virgin, and he's going to be called God with us. God with us. Do we dare hope that maybe, possibly, God's just not sending some second-rate emissary, some broken-down angel, that God himself is coming, that God himself is the promise. Why don't you look at Isaiah chapter 9, and we see a further unfolding of the identity of this personage who has been promised. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, again, Isaiah speaking to the nation of Israel, he says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called. Now I want you to notice the four names ascribed to this son who is going to be given to Israel. Look at the names. Wonderful Counselor. Literally, that means a wonder of a counselor. His counsel is absolutely a wonder. It holds you in awe. But he doesn't stop there. His name also shall be called Mighty God. A son born to Israel? They're going to name him Mighty God? Everlasting Father? Prince of Peace? Could it be that God himself is coming in the person of a human being to be with us? 
Could it be that God is going to give himself to us? I want you to turn over with me to verse 7 now. He says, of the increase of his government in peace, there will be no end. No end. Speaking of it just goes on and on and on. Eternity. His government. What's he talking about? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God knows no limits, knows no bounds, knows no end. It goes on and on and keeps growing for all eternity. And what is the one thing that characterizes the kingdom of God? Peace. Peace. There'll be no end to peace. People say, are we going to encounter different kinds of warfare in heaven? No. He says, peace, finally, forever. He says, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So this person is coming. We have some more identity. Now I want you to flip over with me to Matthew chapter 1 in the New Testament. Now in Matthew chapter 1, in keeping with, with the, 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 the speaking to the Jews and with the Jewish background, Matthew writes to a Jewish audience. That's his predominant uh, uh, group that he's writing to, unlike Mark and Luke and John. Matthew writes specifically to Jews. And he says in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, right after he gives the genealogy of Jesus to show us that Jesus really did come from Abraham and is part of his line, he goes on and he says this. Now this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. Let me describe to you, he says, the birth. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, so they were betrothed. And that was tantamount to being married. But before they came together, before they consummated the marriage, she was found to be with child. Oh, great. <laughs> Mary turns up pregnant. And it ain't by Joseph. Matthew says it's by the Holy Spirit. But of course, who's going to believe that? I mean... Here she is. She's with child. What are her parents going to think? What are the neighbors going to think? What's Joseph going to think? What are the other girls in the neighborhood going to think? You see? She shows up pregnant. Now, Luke, in Luke's account, when Luke writes about this, he says that the angel Gabriel comes and speaks to Mary prior to all this happening. He says, the Holy Spirit is going to come over, come over you. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And you're going to be with child by the Holy Spirit. You're going to be the mother of the Son of God. And Mary's response is, nah, it never happened. <laughs> What's her response? Her response is, let it be done unto me according to your word. I'm available. If you're going to use me, I'm here. Luke says in another place that Mary treasured all these things in her heart. She just held them close. Now imagine what Joseph was thinking. His beloved, his betrothed, turns up pregnant. And nowhere in any of the accounts does Mary offer any excuses. Nowhere does Mary say, but 
you don't understand. See, there's this angel, and, and he told me that, and you see, it, it happened this way. And none of that. She doesn't say a word. She just says, God, I'm trusting you. I'm in your hands. That's instructive, isn't it? But she's found pregnant by the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. I mean, he's a really nice guy. And I want you to see what a nice guy Joseph is. Because he's such a nice guy, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, so he's going to divorce her privately. The thought doesn't even occur to him to take her into his home and love her anyway and accept the child. Nice guy. No, he's going to divorce her quietly, which was Jewish custom. After all, he deserved a virgin. That's what he was promised. He has not gotten that. He's gotten a faithless woman in his mind, so he's going to divorce her quietly, not publicly embarrass her. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, it's cool. It's kosher. It's all right. She will give birth to a son, and you, Joseph, are to give him the name Jesus, which means the Lord saves, because he will save his people from their sins. And in verse 22, Matthew now will quote from Isaiah, chapter 7, that we looked at just a moment ago. It, he says, at this, obviously all this, I'm sorry, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I submit to you, beloved church, that God has given to us the greatest gift. He's given to us himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled all the promises, all the prophecies from the very beginning in Genesis, clear down through the New Testament. God has come to be with us. In John chapter 3, verse 16, a familiar verse to all of us, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only precious son that whoever should believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. Growing up, I, I remember watching on television the old Hallmark Hall of Fame. And it was a little theater production plays on television. And I really enjoyed those. And, and they were sponsored by the Hallmark gift card company. And if I remember correctly, it was the Hallmark company that had a slogan. And their slogan was, when you care enough to send the very best. Some of you remember that. A lot of you are probably too young to remember that. They still use it? Do they really? Great slogan. And they still have the Hallmark Hall of Fame? 
My gosh. Imagine, you know, what you learn when you watch television. Now look, I say that to tell you that God cared enough to send his very best. God cared enough for you and I to send his very best. And he did so at that very first Christmas, that very first winter night when Jesus was born. He cared enough to send his very best. God became a man, God with us. I want to read to you a little story that I happened upon, which illustrates this, I think, beautifully. The story is told uh, that once upon a time in the land of Persia, which is present-day Iran, it was ruled by a wise and benevolent leader called a Shah. You've all heard of the Shah of Iran. And this Shah cared greatly for his people and desired only what was best for them. And one day he disguised himself, for he never went out, he disguised himself, however, this one day as a poor man, and he went out amongst his people to visit them, and he happened upon the public baths. And as he wandered through the public baths, he went down below the baths, and underneath the baths were, was where the fire was stoked up to heat the water for the public baths. And as he went down there, he happened upon and discovered in that cellar the man who tended the fire. Sitting there all alone in a dark room, lonely, nobody with him. So the Shah determined to sit with that man and to visit with him. And he did so. In the course of their time, they, the tender of the fire shared his coarse bread, his coarse meal with this strange visitor. They shared their space, the time. The Shah, in effect, befriended the man in that particular situation. And day after day, the Shah would go back and visit with him and spend time with him. And this man became attached to this strange visitor. He knew not who he was, but he became attached to him and valued him because the man came to where he was and spent time with him. One day the Shah revealed his identity to the, strange, to this, to the man. And he expected the man, quite frankly, to ask for some special favor, some special privilege, once he discovered who his friend was. But not so. Instead, the man who tended the fire looked into the face and the eyes of, of his ruler with wonder and awe and love. He said to him, you left your palace. You left your place of comfort. You left all your fine food. You, you left your glory to come and to sit with me in this dark place. You left all of that and you've come and you've shared my meager food. You've come and you have expressed care about what happens to me. He was absolutely overwhelmed. And he concluded by saying, on any of your subjects, 
You could bestow the greatest of wealth, the greatest of riches, the greatest of things, but upon me you have chosen not to give those things. You've chosen to give yourself. Is that not an appropriate analogy to what God has done in terms of choosing to give himself to us? Beloved, I would, I would urge you, I would share with you that the, the great good news of Christmas is that God has come to give himself to us and for us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's come from glory. He's come from heaven to earth. He's come from a place where angels worship him and exalt him and sing to him 24 hours a day, give him glory. He's come to a place where men, ignorant men, coarse men, reviling men, dishonor him. Don't glorify him. He's come from glory to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, utter humiliation. Utter humiliation. God has come to be with us. What an astounding thought. Can you imagine? He doesn't owe us anything. God has given himself to his creation. Think with me for a moment. Let me illustrate this for you. Bring it down to our level some. How many of you have experienced a meaningful relationship with another human being? Okay, not all of you, but some of you have, okay. <laughs> Think with me now. Love, yes. Yourself. Yourself. That's the greatest blessing you can give to another person, especially if you're a growing, maturing individual. If your life is continuing to be enriched and you give yourself to another person, you're giving them the greatest blessing they could ever, ever hope to receive. I promise you that's true. Think with me in, about in your own life as you've come up, as you've grown up. Of all the gifts, of all the presents, of all the nice things people have given you, what has really marked your life the most in a significant way, positively? Because we've all been marked by people in a negative way. We've also been marked by people in a positive way. You see, over time, the things fade. Money is spent. It's gone. But, but what really lasts in our memory? What really lingers? What really marks us for the rest of our life? It's those people who came into our life and began to give themselves to us. Who began to pour out of the richness of their life into our life. I think of men and women in my past who've marked me tremendously. I think of some men in my early Christian experience who had a tremendous influence on in my life. And I can't quote chapter and verse. I can't tell you exactly what they said to me. All I can tell you is I remember those men 
and I'm deeply moved with gratitude to God for being allowed to be involved with them and have them care about being involved in my life. They have marked me for the rest of my life. And I'm blessed for it. They could have given me money, they could have given me presents, they could have given me baubles and beads. But you know what? All that stuff fades. Cars wear out. They wear out. You can never get the true value for a diamond that you paid for it. But you see, the things that people build into your lives is they give themselves to you. That's what really makes a difference. Spouses, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, I long more than anything else to continue to grow and mature as a man, as a man of God, and as a husband. Because who I am is all I can give to my wife. Oh, I can give her presents, I can give her flowers, I can give her expressions of my love and affection. But those are easy to give. They're important, they mean something. But if I'm not giving myself to her, they mean absolutely nothing. I don't ever want to settle down and become complacent. I don't want to ever stop growing. I don't want to ever stop maturing. I don't want to ever stop learning. Because the more I continue to learn and grow and mature, the more I have to give to my wife, to my son, to you. I want to always be in a position to be able to pour more into you, to challenge you more, to exhort you more, so we never be complacent. I want to give my life to you also. I remember growing up, <laughs> I, I, I came from a relatively large family, and we didn't have very much. And I remember going to my mom and dad at like at Christmas time, and their birthdays and anniversary and times like that, special occasions. And I always go and I'd say, Mom, Mom, what do you want for your birthday? Mom, what do you want for Christmas? Dad, what do you want for Christmas? And they'd, they'd set me down. They'd say, Son, we love you very much. And we're very appreciative that you want to get us something for Christmas. And I'd be sitting there, Yeah, yeah, what, what do you want? I mean, I have really limited resources, so, you know. And they would give me this answer. They'd say, you know what we want? No, what? What do you want? We want you to be a loving, obedient, wise, disciplined child. Yeah, but that's, that's not the stuff I'm talking about. We know. But if you really want to give us something as a gift, Give us yourself. Give us yourself. That's what they were saying. I can never relate to that. You see, because when we're young and we're immature, we think only in terms of that which is shallow stuff. You see? That's all we think of. But as we mature, we begin to change. We begin to see that there's something more, there's more depth and richness to life. And now, just two weeks ago, I promise you, my son came to me. He said, Dad... He said, Dad, what would you like for Christmas? 
I said, son. <laughs> I said, I, I don't really want anything. You want to make me something, that's fine. But you know what I really want? He says, what, Dad? What do you really want? I said, I want you to be wise. <laughs> Why don't you obey me and Mom? Why don't you do us right? Why don't you love God? He said, well, Dad, I do all that stuff. But what do you want? <laughs> what am I asking him? Give me yourself. Don't just give me stuff. Give me yourself and give me something substantial in who you are and who you're becoming. That's what really counts, amen? That's the stuff that really counts. Two words, meaningful relationship. Meaningful relationship. God wants to draw you and I into a meaningful relationship with him. Meaningful relationship, not just relationship meaningful relationship. When you marry somebody, you want to have a meaningful relationship. Now there's lots of people who are afraid of meaningful relationships. Because meaningful relationships imply giving. They imply sacrifice. They imply stretching. Growing. Most of us are just used to settling down just being in our comfort zone. Don't disturb me. I won't disturb you. We'll just kind of cohabitate and go along together. But that's, that doesn't meet the deepest longings in our being. God has created us to be personal beings with the hunger and the longing for relationship. We have this love-hate idea, this attitude towards relationships. We want it, we hate it, we're afraid of it. We're afraid to let people get close, but we want them to get close. We want to be accepted, loved, and valued, but we won't let people in close enough to do it. And so we're terribly unhappy, miserable, most people. Meaningful relationship. God wants to draw us into a meaningful relationship with him, and so he initiates. He first gives us himself. John says, we love him because he first loved us. And then he beckons to us. He says, now come on, trust me. Trust me, give your life back to me. So that we together can have a meaningful, satisfying, fulfilling life together. And you have a heritage to pass on to those who are around you. Real healing, whether it be spiritual healing, whether it be personal, intrapersonal, emotional, whether it be financial, whether it be physical, real, lasting, true healing, whatever the arena, only happens within the context of meaningful relationship. unless you're involved in a meaningful relationship with him, there'll never really be true spiritual healing and reconciliation. You can play church all you want. You can fool yourself all you want. But until there's a meaningful relationship, there'll never be any lasting true healing. Unless there's a willingness to have a meaningful relationship with another person, 
If that relationship is conflicted, there'll never be healing in that relationship. Never. If you go to a doctor, let's say you're physically ill. You've got some physical ailment and you go to the doctor. What kind of doctor do you want to go to? A sterile, austere clinician? Or a warm, compassionate, understanding physician who will minister to you? Which of those two environments do you think will facilitate trust and very possibly the healing dynamic within your body? Are you with me? When you're involved in a significant, effective relationship with somebody, what happens, the dynamic that begins to take place, you can't even put your finger on it, but it has all sorts of ramifications and effects in your life. Why? Because it comes out of the very basic thing that we need the most, relationship. A satisfying, effective, meaningful relationship. That's what God offers. That's the greatest gift that we could ever hope to receive. What, what would it be like if Jesus had not come? What would it be like if Jesus hadn't come? You've all seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, it's been around a long time. They show it every holiday season. Jimmy Stewart. And the, I forget his name as a character, but you, who can forget Clarence, right? The, the little angel guy. What's the premise? The premise is that here's this guy, here's this main central character who feels absolutely hopeless, devastated. His business has gone over. He's let everybody down. He's taken all the weight of it on his own shoulders. He feels absolutely hopeless. The only solution to him now, in the midst of his own self-pity, is to what? Kill himself. To do away, to end it all. It's better. He should not have ever lived. But then along comes Clarence. He jumps off the bridge, Clarence jumps in, saves him, and then, and then takes him through this series of scenes in which he sees the reality, now this is all dramatized, but he sees the reality of what things would be like if he had not, in fact, been born. From his baby brother that he saved, to his relationships with other people, to the effect that his life had on the whole town in which he lived. He had absolutely no visibility of this. And yet Clarence showed him what it would, had been like if he had indeed not been born. And he comes out of that saying, Hallelujah! It's a wonderful life! I'm glad I was born! What would it have been like if Jesus had not come? If God had not deigned to become a man, to be with us. What would it have been like? Hopeless. Absolutely, utterly hopeless. We would not have the Bible as we know it. We'd not have John 3.16. We'd not have the virgin birth, obviously. We'd not have the great safety net of the Bible. Do you know what that is? It's found in one verse. I call it the great safety net of the Bible. Romans 8, 28. 
And we know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him and been called according to his purpose. Man, what a safety net. Hallelujah. No matter, no matter what happens, God's going to turn it around and use it for my ultimate good and his glory. We wouldn't have that. We wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. We would know the strength of God. We would know the peace of God that, that surpasses, Paul says, all human comprehension. We wouldn't have these things. We'd not have the New Testament message of salvation. We'd not have the, the word of the glorious resurrection awaiting us. We couldn't say, come, Lord Jesus. We'd have no promise of heaven. In short, we'd have no hope. I mean, look today at people who have lived their lives as if Jesus had not come. Look at Eastern Europe. Look at the, company, the countries that have been ruled for generations under communist regime or godless culture. I want you to see and evaluate the effect of a society that says there is no God. Now someone's going to quicken argue with me and say, well, but I don't believe in God and my life is not like that. That's because you live in this society which has been based on biblical principles that there is a God. But those values and that basis is rapidly being stripped from our culture. Our whole society is being sanitized from every reference to God. What a tragedy. And it will not be long before the West is like the East. I promise you. I promise you. It won't be long. When you remove God and you seek to go it on your own, God promises you, you'll experience devastation. Just like back in Genesis chapter 3. But God, God has, has come. He's, he's given himself to us. But if he had not come in the person of Jesus, we would have absolutely no hope. Our lives would be just as drab and dismal and hopeless as the lives of those people behind the car. Do you know what they're asking for the most? Bibles. I promise you, it doesn't get out in the press. The news media is not advertising this. But to tell you, to give you an idea of, of how much these people are hungry, somebody had the audacity to go behind the Iron Curtain and tell them there is a God. Somebody had the audacity to go back and tell him his name is Jesus Christ and he came to save that which was lost. Those people knew they're lost. They had no hope. The light was out inside. And though the governments are crying out for economic, technological aid from, from the West, you know what the people are crying out for? The Bible. I promise you. I can show you accounts that document and the Bibles are, are, are made available, they're just, they're taken up like you, they're just gone. There's not enough to go around, and people are li literally shredding the Bibles. They're taking the pages apart, distributing them around, so that everybody at least has one or two pages. And they're memorizing the pages. Because they're hungering for words of life. And the word is spreading like wildfire throughout Eastern Europe. It is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. 
Jesus said, I came that you should have life and have it to the full. I came that you should have life and have it to the full. God's highest gift, the gift of himself to us, I submit to you, should awaken in us our deepest gratitude. How do you respond when someone just at this plane, on the temporal realm, blesses your life? How do you respond? Don't you respond with undying devotion, loyalty? Don't we say things like, you know, I'm, I could never repay you. I'm eternally in your debt. I mean, we say things like that. And there's, there's stirred up in us a sense of, gosh, there's a bonding between this person and myself. And I want to be loyal to that person. Well, if we understand that just at this level, in this temporal plane, what about our relationship with God? What has the understanding and the receptivity to his graciousness done in us? What has it stirred up in us? Has it stirred up gratitude? And if it has, what's the evidence? You know how we evidence our gratitude towards him? Let me tell you how. Jesus gives us a clue. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with most of your heart, part of your soul, some of your strength, and a little bit of your mind. I mean, after all, you know, you can't be intellectual and believe in Jesus. No, what does he say? You should love the Lord your God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, with all of your being. You can only do that when you understand what he has given you. When the gift of himself to your life has impacted you, it cannot help but stir up in you deep gratitude to the degree that you will love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Flip over to Romans chapter 12. We'll close with this. Romans chapter 12. I want you to see these two verses. Verses 1 and 2. Paul sums it all up for us right here. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Here's where Paul sums it all up for us. This is glorious. He says, therefore... He's pointing back to everything he said up to this point. The whole doctrine and the scheme of salvation Paul has laid out for us up to this point through chapter 11. And then he says this, therefore, now comes the application. This is how we respond. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's, what's the next word? Mercy. Mercy. Paul uses the word mercy to encapsulate God's grace. When you think about God, think about him in those terms. He is merciful. He's merciful. He looks down upon us in our, in our quagmire of deceit, sin, brokenness, pain, grief, whatever. And he has mercy on us. He says, I'm coming down and I'm going to be with you. and I'm going to give you life. You don't have the capacity. You don't have the ability to make it on your own. 
Oh, I know you're trying. I know you think you do. But trust me, you don't. I've got to come down and I'm going to be with you. And if you'll trust me, I'll change your life and I'll give you a bent towards me. Because right now you have a bent away from me. I'll give you new life. I'll give you new life. Paul says, in view of God's mercy. Now look at the next part of the sentence. He says, I urge you, brothers, to offer your body. The idea is, by metonymy, to offer yourself, to offer your life in every aspect, every life arena. Offer yourself as a living, what's the next word? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. And he means it. Did God not sacrifice? He gave his most precious possession. Did it cost him anything? Oh, you know it. It cost him everything to get us. And he says, now, if you've got in view, if you understand God's mercy to you, your only response can be a response in kind where you offer your life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him, set apart for him. Yeah, we're in the world but we're not to be of it. He goes on and says, don't let the world stick into its mold anymore. Don't let the world tell you what's true and right. You come to me and let me instruct you. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind as you read my word. as you spend time with me and let me pour myself into you and let me expand your horizons, let me expand your borders, let me transform you. God has given himself and because he's given himself, he says the only response can be that you would give your entire life back to me so that we could have a meaningful relationship And in the context of that meaningful relationship, experience the healing that you so desperately need at every level of your life. God's given us his greatest gift. He's given us himself. What's your response? Pray with me. Father, you know... You know the attitudes, the intentions, the direction of every heart this morning. Lord, at this Christmas season, we give you great thanks and praise. We worship you for this great gift you've given us. You've given us the gift of yourself in the person of Jesus. That our sins be forgiven, that our guilt be relieved that we experience significant healing in this life and perfect healing in the next. Father, all I can say is thank you. And all I can do is is to renew my efforts at continuing to grow in faithfulness, my attitudes towards you, and demonstrate, Lord, that I do love you with my whole heart, mind, soul, and strength and to offer my life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that you would enable me to overcome every encumbrance 
everything that would seek to entangle me, that would seek to distract me from that stated goal and purpose, to love you with my whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. God, I pray you'd speak to every heart this morning, every mind this morning, and that you would stir each one of us to that end, Lord, that we, as we receive your gift, would be awakened to the deepest kind of gratitude, expressing itself in devotion, loyalty, and obedience. Keep your heads bowed.